Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race you sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the uh, collect for today, Palm Sunday, April the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We uh, had a you know an eventful week in ways that I wish it hadn't been. I don't have anything more to say about that at the moment. I just ask for your prayers. Um, it has not been an easy week by any stretch of the imagination. We're we're coming into spring here in the mountains, but it but spring in the mountains takes its time and it and it comes in fits and starts. It it um, comes a few days and then it'll be gone for a day. I mean, we may have uh, some snow showers coming up. I mean, it's just it's it's always weird, <laughs> but it's not going to be the same kind of Palm Sunday as I've mentioned in the past that we've had before, where we had snow on the ground. And I had to wonder whether we were going to actually be able to have church or not on Palm Sunday. Um, it, it's just, you know, it, it's one of those things that, that uh, parts of being in the mountain that I love and, and also, you know, just shake my head at sometimes as well. But um, anyway, so we're, we're moving into um, the, the most glorious time of the year, but we do it by moving through Holy Week, which is coming up. And so I encourage you to, to look. Uh, look to this site because I mean I post something every day I post a video or not a video I post a podcast every single day on the daily lectionary in addition to the Sunday podcasts Um, but this week particularly on Thursday and and Friday for Maundy Thursday and Maundy uh, is a a sort of a corruption of the word mandatum which is new commandment uh, or it's just commandment, really, but it's but it's the new command I give you to love one another, and so um, it's celebrated in the Anglican world and, and in most liturgical places in the same sorts of ways, and and that is is that we 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 can't truly decide what it is we're celebrating. Are we celebrating that new commandment? Are we celebrating washing feet? as the way to love one another, to become servant to one another, or are we celebrating um, the, the communion, you know, sort of the, the reinterpretation of the Passover feast? Uh, it's difficult sometimes to know which of those things we're actually celebrating, and so we do them all. <laughs> and then typically, in, in um, at least in the Anglican world, the, at the end of the service on Thursday, you know, as the, the, the action itself ends um, with Jesus and the disciples going out prior to his arrest. And so what we would do typically in the church on on Thursday evening uh, would be that we would end by stripping the altar of everything of any color at all, putting a black veil over the cross, and leaving in silence just to to mark and to, to recognize the solemnity and the horrible things that are about to happen. And so we would leave the building in silence and go home that way, and then we would regather um, for Good Friday to walk ourselves through (laughs) the events of that Good Friday. And and it's good in retrospect, obviously. And then uh, that day, though, there would be no communion. There would be no celebration at all. It would be a solemn occasion. And what I did for several years, um, well, every year, actually, that I was here pastoring um, the church, was I would choose a character, and I would reflect on what was going on from the perspective 
of that character or characters. Um, and so I went through a whole bunch of different ones. I always enjoyed doing it except for one time. And I felt like God was asking me to look at it from a perspective I had no interest in, which was the perspective of Satan. And, um, cause he doesn't know God's full plan. He, he thought that he had triumphed, uh, when Jesus was crucified on that cross, uh, he thought he had won. And so it, it was a powerful and painful thing for me. I, you know, I felt like God was telling me to do it. And somebody asked me, you know, what are you going to do this year? I said, I'm not going to do it. And, and they said, oh, man, it's one of the things I really look forward to, which makes you feel really good when you preach, you know, 50 some odd sermons a year. And somebody tells you this is the one they really look forward to. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it was a painful thing. And, and I, I just felt like God was telling me to do it. And, and I really didn't want to. C.S. Lewis talks about with screw tape letters that the darkness that he felt and, and how it was, how difficult it was to write the screw tape letters. And if you haven't read the screw tape letters, I would encourage you to. It, it's a, a conversation between a young uh, demon and and his mentor about how best to deal with a, a human subject. And so Lewis said it was just really hard and really dark for him. And so I really didn't want to do this. And so I I told the Lord, all right, you've got like an hour to drop a script on me. And if you'll do that, then then I'll do it. But if not, then I'm done. I'm not going to do it. And he did. (laughs) So anyway, I can can post a link to it on the the podcast page. There'll be a link to that there because there's a video of it on YouTube that I did. So anyway, that's there. And um, so let's jump into Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday in in the Anglican world, at least today, I don't know, honestly, how it was in the past. I didn't have never bothered to go back and look at the um, the previous prayer books to see how Palm Sunday was handled. But uh, in in the 1979 book, at least the way that it works is you start outside and everybody's holding a palm branch or a leaf or whatever. And you you um, you read the Palm Sunday gospel out there, and then you come in. You're singing a, a hymn, "All Glory, Lord, and Honor to the Redeemer King." Um, and, and as you come in, you're waving those palm branches. And so, but and so it's a wonderful beginning. And then within a few minutes, you're going to read the Passion Gospel. So you're going to read all about the trial, the crucifixion, all that it is going to come, and, and it's, it's just hideous. It is the it, I I can't stand. <laughs> the whiplash of going from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, all in one like 15 minute period. And it always feels to me like Palm Sunday doesn't get its due for that reason, because it's as a as a preacher, it's really difficult just to ignore <laughs> that passion gospel that has now consumed several minutes of reading, because it's you know it's typically going to be a chapter and a half or more. So it's difficult as a preacher to get your head around all that stuff. And, and as a congregate, I don't think it's easy either, to be honest with you. Never was a big fan of the way that liturgy lays out. And so today, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to read the Passion Gospel. That's the reason I'm telling you, look back here on Thursday and Friday if you want to hear what I have to say about those things. Um, and I'll post on my Facebook page um, personal page as well as the Faith Seeking Understanding Facebook page. And if you've not um, linked to that, to that, then then I would appreciate you doing so. Um, so anyway, here we go. <laughs> so the the uh, Old Testament lesson it, it is it is very closely linked, unfortunately, to the Passion Gospel. Uh, the the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. 
that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. So what he's saying here is, is that, that one who is taught means one who is instructed in the law, one who is instructed in the word and the ways of God. And so he has the tongue of one who has been taught so that he may sustain with a word him who is weary. is providing encouragement and edification to the one who's weary. Uh, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So what he's saying is, is that, that in one of the Psalms speaks of he has dug my ears. That's not the way that it's translated, but it's exactly the way it should be translated. It's translated as opened. But here he awakens my ear morning by morning. In other words, what he's awakening to is the, the, the word of God, the beauty of God, and the glory of God. And so he, he's going to receive so there's both a receiving and a teaching. And, and that's the point of learning, frankly, to being taught. The purpose of being taught is that you might share what you've received with others. And it's the purpose of learning is intended to be so that you might share that learning and that knowledge with others as appropriate. And so the, here he's saying first that he's given him a tongue as of those who are taught. And now he says, but every single day he awakens my ear as one who, to hear as those who are taught. The, and then what's the result of that is I was not rebellious. You know, I didn't just hear, I did. And, and that's the principle we always need to operate on. Whatever you know needs to become something you put into action. And you, you can either receive it as true and receive it as right and put it into action, or you can hear it and, and not let it impact your life at all. Or the other option would be to say, no, I despise that. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to say that's not true. And that's an option, certainly. And there, there are people who take that option every single day. There are priests, who, bishops, who take that option every single day. The Word says this, but I say, nope, that's not right. Well, don't be that person. I mean, that's all I've got to say about that. And then he goes on to say, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And it's what Jesus taught the disciples, right? Blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And that's exactly what Jesus taught with his words and did in his life. He, he did exactly these things. He allowed himself to be beaten and abused for our sake. He persevered under the most unbelievably difficult circumstances we could ever even imagine with the beating, the scourging, and all that, to, to the crucifixion and the mocking and the spitting on him in that time and in ways that we just can't ever imagine. And Jesus didn't turn away from suffering at all. He embraced it all for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, and for me and for you. And we, we put him there, and we needed it, because otherwise we had no hope in the world. We were lost, and we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says. We weren't dying. We were dead. Without hope in the world, we had no hope of eternal life at all without Jesus. He goes on to say, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. It looks like disgrace, certainly. The people who are doing it believe that it's a disgrace and a humiliation, but he says, I have not been disgraced. There's a greater truth that's actually at play here. There's something more. This is not the end of the story. He said, therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. It's an amazing sort of thing, and it's true for Isaiah is what he's saying. Isaiah is not just talking about putting words into Messiah's mouth. He's speaking of it himself because he and Jeremiah and the others were, were rejected for the sake of the truth for the sake of of the the truth they spoke about convicting people of sin. And, you know, I I read a quote this week that was from Tim Keller's um, Twitter page, and and it said something about that Jesus' teachings offended religious people and drew irreligious people. It's just not true. It's just not true. Um, There's no evidence anywhere in the Gospels of irreligious people being drawn to Jesus' teachings. Jesus taught Jews, always. He taught them in the synagogues. He taught them in the temple. He taught them at festivals. And the other places where you see him mainly teaching, actually, when when, when we're exposed to it, are are in connection with times when he has done healings. It was the healing miracles that drew people to want to hear what he had to say. He got an audience by what he did. Or it would be after he had done these things, when he would go up to Jerusalem at pilgrim festivals. That's when you see the feedings of the 5,000, the 4,000, and all that. It's always, these are religious pilgrims. They're not irreligious people at all. And, And we've come to this weird idea that the gospel has nothing to do with sin, but everything to do with grace. Well, grace is meaningless if I don't need it. If there's no sin, then I don't need grace. But that's not true at all. And that's what this, this is all about. This is all about sin. If we don't have redemption that we don't need, right? I mean, we, the knowledge of sin is the knowledge of need for redemption, which, which causes me to get to the place where Paul says in Romans, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? The answer is Jesus. If you don't recognize sin, if you don't even talk about it, then grace doesn't have a meaning. It's not even cheap grace. It's justification without anything at all. Cheap grace is from Bonhoeffer, from Cost of Discipleship, and he's very clear about that, and that's the problem with the message that's grace alone. Well, that will attract irreligious people. A gospel devoid of the, the reality of sin in our lives is no gospel at all. It's not even necessary. It's just, you know, a motivational speech. And I, I, I really have a strong, strong opinion about that. And Jesus convicted, the, he said the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And Jesus did it himself. When he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he upped the bar on sin. And, and this week I was working on some other stuff. I mean, because he, he upped the bar by saying, you've heard it said that don't commit adultery. Well, I'll tell you this. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Uh, that You've heard it said that don't commit murder. But I tell you this, that if you hate your brother, then you've committed murder. Jesus talked about sin. He was very clear about these things. His, the beginning of his ministry was convicting the world of sin, and it continued all through the way. When those Pharisees asked him about divorce, 
They asked him what grounds that he would justify a divorce based on his answer to their question about about the the divorce. And, and he said, no, 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 you, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking at Moses uh, at, the, at the time of the giving of the law. No, 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 I'm pointing you back to Genesis. I'm pointing you back to Genesis 2, that he created them male and female, and that a man's supposed to leave his parents and cleave to his wife. That, that's the actual teaching of God and what God wants. It was because your hardness of heart, he gave you something else. And they said, well, on what grounds? And he says, sexual immorality. You can do it for that. But that's a specific kind of sexual immorality even. It's the kind of immorality where a spouse openly and wantonly has sexual intercourse with a person, another person, in, in the sight of others. Because they've so they've so disregarded marriage that a marriage doesn't even exist truly, and, and they're in those cases they're not even allowed to remarry that spouse. That's the 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 whole scandal in Hosea is God tells him to do exactly that as a sign, a prophetic sign for his relationship with his people who have wantonly and openly done spiritual adultery. And so Hosea is commanded to do it. It's the only way he can do it is because God commanded him to do it. And so we can't have a gospel without conviction of sin. And, and the way to speak to irreligious people is certainly not to talk about sin. So anyway, he said, he who vindicates me is near. So Jesus knew how this would end. And in spite of that, as a man, he suffered all that he suffered. He says, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. What's the message of Isaiah? Because that, that was the sort of the takeoff point there was, was that Isaiah is speaking of himself here and his own rejection. And, and we know Jeremiah is thrown in a cistern. He, all these things happen to him. They're ready to put him to death, everything else. So, so what he's saying is, is that I'm going to persevere through this because I know my cause is right. But what is their cause? Their cause is to convict the nation of sin and apostasy and spiritual adultery. Their point is to convict them of sin so that they might be redeemed, so that they would repent. So he says, who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? You know, you don't get the final judgment, the final say-so. These people don't. God does. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And, and that's the, the, the point is, is that, that we persevere in spite of what people say about us. That we don't give up. We, we can take the abuse because we're, we're, we have eternal life. <laughs> you know, this life is, is passing away. It's passing away like a shadow. And in... In the gospel today, in, this, in the Palm Sunday gospel, when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead. And what he had done, he had, he had, he's, as he's coming to Jerusalem, he passes through Jericho, and, and that's where he runs into Zacchaeus, and he calls him in. And I've, I've done a long thing on Zacchaeus in the past. And, and in changing Zacchaeus, I mean, it's a scandal that he chooses Zacchaeus and goes to his house. Everybody in, in Jericho is scandalized because he's a chief tax collector. He's hated. He's also Jewish, but he's hated by the people because he, he's taking from them and he, he's conspiring and collaborating with Rome in doing so. And, and so they're scandalized that Jesus chooses to go to his house. But the problem that they don't see, the thing that happens there is what Zacchaeus repents. And he said, I'll pay back whatever I've stolen from anybody. 
And so he's going to now be an honest tax collector. Their lives are about to change because Zacchaeus' life changed. So then he goes from there and he tells the parable of the ten minas where a man goes away to receive a kingship. And, and the, the people behind don't want him to receive that kingship. They've rejected him in that way. But he gives to one ten talents and another five and another two, or one, sorry. And, and the, the guys who get the ten and the five invest and they do well. And then he's, they're offered to enter into the joy of their master. He's not the man that, that these other people think he is. But the one says, no, 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 I know you're a, you're a hard man. You reap where you didn't sow and all this kind of stuff. And so I just put it in the ground. Here's your, here's your one talent back. And, and so, no, no, you're going to be judged for that. You failed. So that's going to be taken away from you. But, but it's because you misunderstood the character of the man. The character of the man, whatever people thought, he shows his character in the way that he treats the, the two others the ones he gave the ten and the five to, by inviting them to join into his joy, and, and he trusted him with more. And he's speaking that word about the rejection of the man as king for this day, for this hour. He's prophesying what's getting ready to happen. So when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, he's still outside Jerusalem. Bethpage and Bethany is out there where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. At the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, which is not Jerusalem, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So what, he is consciously and intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that talks about the king coming into town on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. So he's intentionally fulfilling this. And, and as they were untying the colt, they went in and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? As you would. <laughs> You're stealing my colt. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, this donkey, the, the, thing, the reason you go on a donkey and not a horse, a horse is, an, is emblematic of war. And a donkey is a sign of peace. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, like a saddle, to make it softer. Um, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, which is what was customary in those times whenever you, whenever you recognize and welcome a significant personage like a king. It's sort of a red carpet. That's exactly what it would have been. That's exactly the meaning of that. But they're receiving him as a king. So as he was drawing near, not there, but near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're acclaiming him to be the coming king, the messianic king, to fulfill all the hopes of the people. They believe the time has come. But Jesus has already prophesied that he'll be rejected. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the religious here do reject him, and the people don't. Why? Because of the mighty works they had seen. So they're proclaiming him to be the king based on the evidence that he's presented them in the works that he's done. The Pharisees reject him because he's not coming to be the king they want. He does things they don't like. They think he's a lawbreaker. They think he breaks rules regarding the Sabbath all the time. 
So they see and judge him wrongly in the same way that the people did in the parable that he told of the ten minas. So here, Jesus is saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation would cry out in proclamation, the king is coming. But they're rejecting him because he's not one of them, and he won't align himself with them. It's sort of like when Joshua's preparing to come into the land, and he sees this man standing there, and he comes up and he said, are you for us or against us? And the answer is neither. He's aligned with God. Joshua's got to make a decision. Are you going to align with me or not? We'll find out whether I'm your enemy or your ally based on a decision you make, not on something I tell you. You've got to make a decision. And it, it carries through in Joshua's life all the way to the end. And he says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But you have to choose for your own self what you're going to do. And, and it's true of all of us all the time. We always have to say, are we going to align ourselves with God's purpose? Or, or are we going to go our own way? And, and it's best <laughs> in the long run on the right side of history. And the right side of history is always God's side of history. Like Isaiah, we look at at the world and say, you don't make the final judgment here. The final determination on whether I was right or wrong is not left up to you. And the way you treat me, and, and if it looks like disgrace in your eyes and humiliation in your eyes, that is not the final word. And I know that because I know Jesus was raised from the dead. So I know the final word is not Good Friday. It's Easter Sunday. And it's important for us to always have that view in mind. But Jesus says here the stones would cry out. That the proclamation of me as king isn't dependent on your cooperation. Creation wants this, longs for this, has always longed for it since it was put in subjugation in Genesis 3. Paul says that in Romans 2. I don't mean Romans the number 2. I mean T-double-O. And Jesus says this, and then what happens is he comes near to Jerusalem. As he drew near and saw the city from outside the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. He's speaking exactly like Isaiah did, exactly like Jeremiah did, exactly like Ezekiel did. All of them prophesied this same thing. But in in their prophecies, after a time, those were reversed. And in living memory of some people who who left Jerusalem. But here, Jesus says, no, it's going to be done. They won't leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. You rejected me as king, and therefore there's not going to be another temple. It's all going to be gone. Jerusalem's never going to be the same. You will never possess this place in the way you do at this moment. And they still don't to this day. And that's not an anti-Jewish statement. If you know me, you know way better than that. I'm just saying that the rejection of Jesus as the king means it'll never, Jerusalem will never be the same until the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven at the second coming of Christ. But in this one, they bring judgment down on themselves 
by the rejection of Jesus as king. And so, but, but, but there's more to the story than that, because if, if you're listening to me, you probably haven't rejected him as king. There may be places in your life where you're not allowing him to be Lord, but you acknowledge that he should be. So there are probably places in your life, like as there are in mine, where, where I know better, but I continue to do things that are displeasing to him. And, and I, can, I want to please him. I want to be able to say with all my heart that, that his law is dearer to me than anything on earth, that his lordship over my life, that I'm fully submitted to him. That's what I want. It's what David expresses in Psalm 119, which is 176 verses long. It's eight verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an ode to God's law. It's an ode to God as king that way. Did David carry it out completely perfectly? Absolutely not. Ask Uriah the Hittite, who was killed because of David's adultery with his wife. So you, we, can, we can love God's word and God's law, while at the same time not fully keeping it. There are places in our lives we keep from him. There's some place where desire overcomes my, my love for God. And so Paul says, what's the antidote to all this? What is our reaction now that he is king? Then what he, what he says here in the Philippians passage, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, that it's ours in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because we've been given the Holy Spirit. So we can have this mind. We have to choose it. Paul's given a commandment, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's possible for you to have this mind, and I'm commanding you to do it. We have to be commanded to do it because it's not natural for us to so sublimate our own will and our own desires to an external force and an external word, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, he sets him up on a pedestal higher than anything we can imagine, equality with God, but didn't count that as a thing to be grasped. No, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The, 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 the divine condescension of the incarnation is breathtaking, if we think about it. And if that doesn't happen, neither does any of the rest of the stuff. There's no, without the divine condescension of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, becoming a man, then then there is no redemption. And he said, so whatever position you think you have in your life, well, it doesn't compare with what Jesus laid down. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, the most ignominious end you could imagine. In fact, it says, cursed is he who is hanged on a tree in the law itself. And like Hosea, Jesus has to take on that curse. Like Hosea, he has to be commanded to do this. But he has an option. Both of them have options. And those options were, do I obey that commandment to become a curse? And so Jesus did. He was obedient even unto death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name for obedience, for laying aside what he already had. He had no need to come to earth. He could have said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have broken relationship with you. I've had this unbroken fellowship and love relationship with the Father always. And now I have to lay that down. Why? 
for love of the world. He loved the world more than he loved that fellowship with God. He wanted us to be brought into that fellowship and relationship of love. And there was only one way to do that. And it required obedience. And we're called to obedience. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Be obedient. Be obedient to the mind and the spirit within you. Don't think highly of yourself. Become a servant, just as Jesus commanded his disciples to become servant. And and the, the end result of that, he says, God's exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that's not what's going to happen to you. You're not going to get the name that's above every name. You can't. Because... You needed him. But he says the end result will be that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Some will bow for their own salvation and redemption. Others will bow in acknowledgement that they failed to recognize him as king and failed to have him as king. In fact, they rejected him. But ultimately, they will bow to him as king of all. The glory and the joy that we have in our lives should exceed anything anyone else who doesn't know Jesus should have. We should be a people who, no matter what our circumstances are, should be characterized by people of joy and by people of obedience who love him and who love his word, even when it's not pleasant to them. Yeah, you can be religious and get it wrong. Be like, Isaiah says, have the tongue of those who are taught, and that begins that you may sustain with a word him who is weary, but that all begins with morning by morning, awakening your ear to hear as those who are taught. And then, I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward in obedience and love. Always quick to hear him speak, whether it's for you or against you, and quick to be able to speak a word of truth, a word of love, a word of hope to the world.